0: from the art section of the wall street journal to walk invisible the bronte sisters review survival instincts and literary ambitions by dorothy rabinowitz to walk invisible presents the bronte sisters as they've never quite been seen before nor is it likely that devotees of charlotte's finn atkins jane eyre or emily's Peary, wuthering heights or Anne's charlie murphy the tenant of wildfell hall ever paused long to consider the circumstances in which all three of these writers live together, or rather survive together, as sisters. In this darkly acerbic and riveting masterpiece drama, written and directed by Sally Wainwright, writer of the wonderful Last Tango in Halifax, it is the struggle to survive, not literary ambition, though that ambition is a strong one, that takes precedence in the lives of these sisters. They are the daughters of the Reverend Patrick Bronte, Jonathan Price, a needy widower and father distinctly more concerned with his only son, Branwell, Adam Nagaitis, than with the doings of his dutiful daughters. He has reason for concern, as do his daughters. Branwell is a tragic figure, an alcoholic sunk in a life of dissipation, the sexual kind included, and one shaming to the family, whose members nevertheless remained fiercely devoted to him. A flamboyant sort, Branwell continues to harbor dreams of literary achievement with no hope of fulfilling them. He's a drinker and can't stop the chief cause of the somberness that sits heavily on life at the Yorkshire parsonage where the Brontes lived. He's not, however, the only cause of the gloom and tension that hang in the atmosphere, that seems to touch every conversation between the sisters, each with literary ambitions, each secretly, at least at first, trying her hand at writing. Their ultimate triumph arrives with the emergence of their actual identities after writing wildly successful works all under male-sounding pseudonyms. The drama's title was inspired by the answer Charlotte gave when asked why she liked to write anonymously. If offered one gift by a good fairy, it would be Grant Me the Power to Walk Invisible. From the Art Section of the Wall Street Journal Life Review From a Single Cell, Growth and Regression By Joe Morgenstern For all its flashy trappings, weighty ruminations, and zero-gravity floatings aboard the International Space Station, life turns out to be another variant of alien, though without the grungy horror and grim fun. In space, no one can hear you snore. Nor can anyone hear micrometeorites banging against a planetary probe, but they bang loudly in a preface that bodes ill for plausibility the probe damaged but still intact has just reached the space station from mars where it scooped up soil samples that may or may not contain signs of life then bingo a single cell organism starts wiggling its cilia beneath the microscope of a british scientist hugh derry arian bakari who declares jubilantly we're looking at the first incontrovertible proof of life beyond earth wow but hold on This epical discovery is being entrusted to one man toiling in a tiny laboratory in orbit rather than to a team of preeminent scientists on Earth? It's one of many notions that make sense only within the movie's narrow plot and claustrophobic setting. Another is Hugh's enchantment with the little critter, which he names Calvin. He tickles and pokes it recklessly, while Calvin grows from one cell to a much bigger critter with a startling gift for mobility. Hasn't he seen Alien? Can't he guess that a creature capable of such an ominous growth spurt might not remain his new best friend? Taken on its own terms, as a kinetic thriller, life is lively enough for a while. The director, Daniel Espinosa, Safe House, knows how to move things along, mostly through the station's very long passageways, though also outside during spacewalks when emergencies require them. The reliably excellent Seamus McGarvey photographed Nigel Phelps' physically impressive production with its myriad screens dispensing cascades of data. The six-person crew includes Ryan Reynolds' Rory Adams, a cocky mission specialist, the station's pilot, David Jordan, an oddly bleak Jake Gyllenhaal, and a microbiologist, Miranda North. She's played by Rebecca Ferguson, a lovely and skillful actress who brings, dare I say it, some needed gravity to the proceedings it's needed because the expansive potential of the title dwindles down to one more monster a sort of oversized octopus on a rampage the screenplay was written by rhett reese and paul Wernick, who did the hugely successful deadpool and the delightful genre comedy zombieland they do what they can here but it isn't enough Clever chatter and perfunctory characterizations—he was a paraplegic, David is alienated from earthly concerns—can't compensate for a repetitive narrative in which Calvin's predations take him outside the station, then back in, then outside again, and always to the accompaniment of relentless orchestral blasts. Who knew there were so many trombones in space? From the Life Section of the Wall Street Journal cruise vacations for the anti-cruise crowd by christian l wright my father and i weren't due aboard our ship until the next afternoon so we settled in at a table on our venice hotel's terrace overlooking the grand canal to watch the pageant of waterborne traffic the commuter vaporetti the gondolas and the water taxis with young italian cowboys at the helm then from behind santa maria della salute The bow of a mega cruise ship pierced the painterly scene and slowly cast its enormous shadow over the lagoon. In the great ports, such rude arrivals surprise no one anymore. More than 25 million people will take a cruise in 2017, and ships just keep bloating to accommodate them. Royal Caribbean's Oasis Class.